You're listening to Radio NL's Community Town Hall, brought to you by the Vic Downtown, roasted here, always fresh. This month's guests are Councillor and July Deputy Mayor Arjun Singh and Kamloops Voter Society member Leslie Lax. The following was previously recorded at the Vic at the corner of Fourth and Victoria. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join me here this morning. And we got a good list of questions from the uh, question submission box here at the front door to get things started. I think the one thing that is kind of top of mind right now for a lot of people is what happened in Juniper on July the 1st, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of concern from people in that neighborhood about having an emergency egress access road to be able to get out on a moment's notice. I know there's been a lot of conversation that's been happening uh, to try to rectify that situation. Uh, There's been some maintenance done to some of those dirt roads to get out and talk about how to open those gates a little bit quicker. Uh, Just kind of where is the city in, in conversations for a permanent road though? I know that's a longer term plan, but there has been talk about that already. So where are we on that issue? Well, the uh, fire in Juniper was, I think, a wake-up call for uh, a lot of us in a couple different ways. I mean, I think that it's important to say that everybody got out, no structures were damaged, and there were secondary access roads that were potentially available if needed. Uh, And so I think the the question there was really about uh, communication and making sure people knew kind of what was going on, what the plans kind of were, because I think people waited for a long time in traffic jams, not knowing what the sort of plan was from the sort of official authorities. Now, after that experience, we as council uh, and city staff um, sat down and talked about how we could accelerate a bunch of those conversations around communication, around access in different ways, and with a permanent road access, I think the strategy there is to uh, talk with our provincial and federal colleagues about uh, more funding coming uh, around the notion of climate adaptation so we could build that road faster. Um, so on the west side of Juniper, going through Rose Hill, there's two uh, emergency access routes that can be used more or less now. On the east side, that access is not really there the way that we like to see it there. So that's also being worked on. How quickly could we potentially see some, like best case scenario, when would it happen? It's a hard question to answer, Jeff. I mean, I think that we're working with the province to figure it out. I think in the, in the sort of long-term, in the sort of in the before the June or July 1st fire world, it was probably a five or 10 year build out. Uh, I hope it'll be faster now. Uh, but I guess the key thing to say there is that um, we, we can plan these things as much as we like you know, tabletop exercises with emergency management. When we have a real life situation and we go through that, I think the, the real question becomes how do we make sure that there's uh, you know, emergency access routes to all neighborhoods in town that have uh, you know, maybe one access in or out. And so uh, that's, a, that's a big conversation to have. Yeah, because all the conversation right now, from what I've seen, is focused on on Juniper Ridge and Valley View, right? Um, But I got a question here from Margaret Barden saying, I live in Dallas, and to get on the highway, there's only one entrance or exit on Pat Road. Um, Living with the fires at the moment, are we going to see some clearing along the rail tracks by CN and CP, not only to prevent fires, which is another issue, but also, again, that that access. I mean, this isn't just a Juniper issue, right? There's other subdivisions in the city that probably are are dealing with similar problems. Yeah, and I think people should uh, know that if there was a 
uh, an issue with a train and uh, blocking a track and then there was a fire that they would break the train and kind of open that access up. I mean, I think that we work um, a lot with the railway trying to ask them to do various things and sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. Uh, but I think in terms of the emergency management piece and clearing uh, brush and what they're doing around having trains now that actually have like some fire suppression capacity on the actual train itself, um, my understanding is the railways are doing those things so that uh, there is there's, uh, a bit more, um, you know, sort of fire sort of uh, systems or prevention work being done. Let's stick with the issue of, of locomotives because we got an interesting question here from uh, Peter Bartel. Yes. Uh, I'm talking about sitting down with CP and CN to get them to discontinue idling their locomotive engines. So obviously this is a climate change concern, probably a noise concern as well, but I think it's more to do with climate change, pollution, global warming, um, and, and talking about trying to get these trains to shut down their engines when they're just sitting there on the tracks. Well, let's start with the relationship that council has with, with the rail companies. And it's always kind of difficult to get them to sit down in front of council, isn't it? And, and the conversations when they get there are pretty in-depth, but I wonder how how much progress actually gets made during those conversations? <laughs> That's a good question. I think that the railways predate confederation, we always say. So they're, they're, they're really established forces in the, in the country. We do have ongoing conversations with them at the staff level. They come to council probably once a year or whatever that, that sort of frequency is. That's around the frequency. And you know, we ask them lots of different questions. The question that they sort of come back at us around development, around the rail yard, for example, is the city zoned this land you know, really allow this, these buildings to be here. You're by a working rail yard. Mr. Bartel has been in touch for many years, very frustrated by the idling locomotives. We set up meetings with him to meet with uh, CB representatives, and I guess it hasn't gotten as far as he'd like it to get, to get to, right? So, I mean, I think that the railway folks say that they don't idle excessively. They have a little governor in the, in the machines that... Uh, at certain temperatures, turn them on, turn them off. And without really sitting there, you know, myself, 24-7, I don't really have a first-hand knowledge as to what kind of happens down there. But I think that certainly from the perspective of citizen complaints with the railway, there's two options there. One is to call the railway directly itself to their public information line. And one is to definitely call or email city council, city councillors, and, you know, we can forward it on the railway uh, in terms of, you know, the, con the concern and the complaint. And typically... The railway folks are, are open to conversations. Whether they'll actually change things or not, we've had kind of a hit and miss record. Les, you want to jump in here? Do you have anything to, to add here or maybe a question to follow up? Thanks, Jeff. Um, so thanks, Arjun, for those. And uh, it was good to see that the city, in fact, did uh, respond to the, to the Juniper fire. Part of the question is planning. And I think it's really critical that as citizens and as residents that we're aware that the city has evacuation plans. We know that they can't be specifically detailed, but we do know that we can have plans and planning is important. Without those plans and without testing the plans in the sense of, well, if we have a plan for evacuation, what are the communication vehicles that we can use? How can we make sure that the citizens know who needs to evacuate and who doesn't and what routes they need to take? The city has the capacity to do that planning and that planning should have been done prior to the Juniper fire because it was what folks were well aware that there was only one egress from the community. 
And so while it's important that, yes, you're recognizing that we need to plan in the future, I think we also need to admit that the city didn't have those plans in place. If they did, it would have been a lot smoother and we would have had a lot less panic from residents. Les, thanks for that question. I would say there was planning that was done in advance of, of those fires. I mean, there was certainly communication gaps that were there. There were gaps around, uh, well, mainly I think it was a communication gap in my mind because essentially when, when we uh, were talking to the emergency response professionals, they had actually, the fire department actually had practiced what happened in Juniper two days before. And when the emergency operations center was spun up again, again quite quickly, they had sort of determined that because it was nighttime, the best route out uh, was Highland Drive because it was lit and there wasn't, the fire wasn't coming, uh, wasn't actually a threat to it at, at that point in time. Now, what I will say is that with the, with the new facts, which are really uncertainty and rapidness of these things happening, right? So I think with extreme weather, What's happening now is that these things, like what happened to Lytton, right, just happened in 20 minutes, right? So you need to kind of figure out, I think, how to respond to that. That's challenging, right? How do you actually plan for things that are really uh, happen so quickly and have those kinds of issues, right? So, but I think that that's the sort of added thing I think we have to think about is kind of how we uh, do that. And also how we, so you're right, we, you can't tell people which evacuation route because it might be blocked by a fire or it might be blocked by something, right? But you can tell them we have an app or we have a way of communicating through. I mean, I want to give credit to the, the Radio NL and other media. They were on it right away, right? And unfortunately, in my view, they weren't getting a lot of information for the first half hour, hour that the emergency was kind of up. So these are all learnings we're, we're working on. Uh, and the city manager is committed, we've committed to actually reviewing it and publicly you know talking about the results of that review of what happened in juniper and people can definitely um you know add to that in terms of concerns they may want to see that we actually work on improving you're listening to radio nl's community town hall brought to you by the vic downtown roasted here always fresh we'll be back after this you're listening to radio nl's community town hall brought to you by the vic downtown roasted here Always fresh. This month's guests are Councillor and July Deputy Mayor Arjun Singh and Kamloops Voters Society member Leslie Lax. The following was previously recorded at the Vic at the corner of 4th and Victoria. Commercial activity in Riverside Park. That has been a talk of conversation. And I know Tourism Kamloops, they've been set up for about a month. There was a lot of concern from the friends of Riverside Park about having commercial space. Mm -hmm. I disagree with them, but they're allowed to have their opinion. But is this even a good year to be able to test this out, given how smoky it is, the lack of tourists probably coming right now to Kamloops because of this weather? It's going to be hard to gauge success, I think, of this project. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think that obviously you you don't start these things thinking we'd be in this smoky situation we're kind of in now. I also think that it's one of the things that I've noticed is that commercial activity in Riverside Park has always been a really controversial issue uh, in our community. So when I first you know, got involved with local council stuff, 2005 around, there was a big plan to put a hotel on the parking lot on the sort of Riverside of the Coliseum or the, or the arena. And that was, it was a very divisive community sort of conversation. And so 
They go to the parquet that was supposed to be on the, uh, on the, on the Heritage House parking lot. Again, another divisive conversation. In fact, citizens you know, did a counter-petition against it. Actually, the Calum's Law Society actually came out of some of those conversations, I think, way back then. Uh, and it, so I don't think that projects like that that tend to sort of divide people for no real good reason, in my view, make a lot of sense. And so I think that the idea around having some of these rentals in Riverside Park now was really kind of a pandemic recovery or it was sort of a let's try to give people things to do in town sort of so to speak and so it you know it's a pilot obviously as, as you mentioned the, the conditions aren't very ideal but also I mean the river there the current is very very strong so you have to be really careful actually what you're putting in to the river there so I mean e-bikes or bocce balls or frisbees you know I think that's probably you know not a bad thing but if you're looking at things you put in the river it becomes in my mind a little you have to be pretty pretty confident in the water to be Mm -hmm. able to actually i think handle those well in my view right so council decided to do it and it's a pilot project and maybe they'll want to do it again next year because as you say the year the year wasn't very very this year is very very smoky and, and such but yeah, we'll see. Well, the reason I had brought it up is just because Orpha Logan put in a question saying, will we see Sea-Doo rentals at Riverside in the future? I don't think we're in line for any motorized vehicles down there. I no. don't imagine that's on its way. No. Uh, but just the general question that he has is sort of about, you know, rentals and stuff being there into next year and beyond. I guess it's tough to say at this point. Yeah, and that's the beauty of, I mean, the pilot is the pilot, and we'll see where we, results kind of happen after that. You know, I would say that you're right. The conditions right now aren't ideal to have a pilot, but it is what it is, right? And the whole issue of commercial activity in Riverside Park is an interesting one. It was also a very interesting process, the way council chose to move to approve a project. And I should say to approve an idea because there wasn't really a project. There was no actual proposal for what this looked like. There were no metrics for how we might gauge success or not. There was no indication of how we would choose which vendors. So in the sense of whether if it's a post-COVID recovery project, well then, how is it post-COVID recovery? Who's benefiting from it? Where is that benefit to the business? Which businesses benefit, etc., etc.? So I was really, really surprised when, I mean, councils obviously made the decision, but when they went ahead without any real information and said, yes, okay, despite the fact that, and we talk about planning, and planning is absolutely critical. I think it was December 2019, council approved the downtown plan. And that downtown plan very clearly said, no commercial activity in Riverside Park. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That was the plan, and that was the plan that was developed and approved by council after significant input from the public. And yet, no one on council questioned when it was said to them, yes, it's in the plan. The plan supports this. So I find that very, very interesting that we spend hundreds and thousands of dollars and lots of public time and years of staff time to develop these plans only just to throw them away. So how do we know that we won't have motorized sports, for example, because when we get to plans, council doesn't actually stick to any of their plans. So first of all, thanks for your work on the downtown plan. I really appreciate the work that you did there on behalf of the community. I'm, a, I'm probably in, 
a bit of delicate waters here because I, I didn't vote for that to go ahead, the pilot project, but council made a decision, and I think it's important for those of us on council who are on the losing side of votes to not, you know, second-guess or support it. I guess what I would say is that during the conversation that led up to that vote at council, we heard from you or from so many other people, very pros and cons, all those things you're, you're sharing now, I think were also shared to council before the vote was actually made, not necessarily like a week before, two weeks before, but, but in that, you know, couple hour, a couple day right, right up to that vote. So, I mean, we all had the opportunity to hear from various, you know, folks around what, what they feel about it, both pro and con, and like many things, decisions are made, right? So, I mean, I think that there is the ability for folks to influence council. Sometimes we don't go with staff recommendations. Frankly, most times we do, uh, as we all know. But I think it's it's important for people to keep on giving the feedback and not feeling like, you know, there's no hope because there are times where we, we do we do vote not how it's been recommended by staff, for sure. My, my bigger issue is not about the decision. I accept the decision. And like in any democracy, we accept decisions whether we wanted them or not. My issue at this point, and one of KVS in terms of accountability and openness and, and the, the ability to understand processes within council was the process and was also the fact that uh, and this is really critical where the downtown plan had specifically said no no one on council ever questioned whether that plan said no or not except for one councillor only but questioned that the plan said no you fully accepted staff's comment that it's in the plan and therefore it, it should be going ahead. And so my question then is process. Yep. If you make plans, and yes, plans can change, but there need to be good reasons for them, and there was no explanation of what the particular reason was for changing that particular piece of the plan. So the, the real question becomes, if we engage in strategic planning, if we engage in planning for neighborhoods, if we engage in budgeting, we should, where possible, stick to those plans unless there's a good reason for change. And in which case, I believe that council should listen to what those reasons are, but none of those reasons were actually presented to council. Well, I, th I think it's a very fair comment, but what I, what I would say is that I think that, again, as you said, sometimes people, the plans do change, things do happen in that process, right? And there was, it was well canvassed before that meeting, that conversation, I think, in my view. I obviously believe what you believe, right? But I think council as a whole decided that there was a good reason to do a pilot project in a pandemic situation to see what's happening. So you put me in this fun place of actually having to sort of explain what's in the mind of my colleagues. And, you know, that, that's absolutely that's fine. We can definitely do that. But I think that there are sometimes things that do get changed. I definitely agree with you that when we have plans that have a lot of community input into them and they're really broadly engaged upon and I would add the climate action plan which is approved to that conversation we need to actually move in that direction and and fund and implement all the things we've been talking about throughout this conversation around what actually goes from a plan to actual reality has to happen as well now again there are times where plans are changed. And I would also just say that this is really seen, as Jeff was saying initially, as a pilot project, right? So this is something that, and you know, your, your comments less about how it's going to be evaluated, that's 
the next thing to talk about. It's really important to kind of make sure that that's done a proper way. And I acknowledge the fact that you're not feeling that it was done properly, right? Just one more point that I wanted to make on this particular issue, and that is, I, like I mentioned off the top, I don't know if this year is going to be the right year to gauge it with the weather conditions that we've experienced, with the lack of tourists coming in, with the lack of things going on, events, right? We don't have music in the parks going on right now. We don't have the Dragon Boat Festival or Rib Fest coming this summer, right? These are things that are going to bring people into Riverside to use these rentals, and we're relying strictly on local tourism, I guess, to to gauge the success of this pilot program, and I don't know if that's going to be a fair way to gauge it. An audience question asking about river access, saying, If I live on the North Shore in Brock and West Side, I have the Henry Gruber Center area, MacArthur Island, the trails at the airport, but council is missing an opportunity to put another waterfront park in. He says, If I live out in West Side, you have Westmount Park, you have Hop over the dike to get at the river, and you have Centennial Park. But if I live on the south side of the river from Aberdeen to Barnhartvale, there's Pioneer Park and Riverside Park. That's it. So we have all the growth in the city in those areas. When is the city going to increase water access on the South Thompson for all those on the south side of the river? Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the question. I mean, I think that the um, the issues you raise are ones that have, have also been raised previously around access and people landscaping over accesses, and especially out in the east parts of town. Um, I would just say, that, I mean, I don't, I don't see a lot of demand for that right now myself. I mean, I think, I think the question becomes. You know, if there, if more and more people are concerned about that, then we will hear more about that, and we'll do stuff around that right now, right? But I think that uh, there, and just generally speaking, uh, the, the philosophy around around parks in town is kind of interesting because we tend to now uh, not want to do um, smaller, like you know, like neighbor neighborhood parks. We want to do kind of more of a land assembly or have money coming in. So developers, when they build, a lot of time will put money into a parks fund. They'll go to like Riverside Pioneer, Henry Group, Centennial, Westmount. That has been the philosophy for some for some time now from our parks department. Um, and we, we haven't really had much pushback on that, to be honest with you. We haven't had much people saying, you know, we want to have access to these different areas that you're, you're raising today. Um, so, I mean, I guess we have to figure out where that sits on our priority list of work that we would do. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in hearing more around uh, views around that for sure and if obviously if people are um, you know interested in that happening we should talk about it more for sure you're listening to radio nl's community town hall brought to you by the vic downtown roasted here always fresh we'll be back after this you're listening to radio nl's community town hall brought to you by the vic downtown roasted here always fresh this month's guests are councillor and july deputy mayor arjun singh and kamloops voter society member leslie lax the following was previously recorded at the vic at the corner of fourth and victoria Should we move on to homelessness and drug issues? Because that is something everyone wants to talk about, is what's going on in the city to try to address the issue of homelessness and crime that's taking place within businesses. Like, we got a lot of general questions. Jim says, when will council address the rising homeless drug and crime issue? Uh, Laura Douglas, why is there not more of a police presence on Victoria Street? Dolly Flynn, could Kamloops find some place where the homeless could live? I mean, this is clearly something that's top of mind to a lot of people. And this is, I I know it's no simple solution. There's no silver bullet. There's no one size fits all approach. Super complicated. How do you 
go about organizing your thoughts to make sure you're tackling this issue in a proper way, right? Not just small little solution to help this tiny little pocket, but we got to address the issue citywide, right? This isn't just a West Victoria issue. This isn't just a North Shore issue. This is something that's happening all across Kamloops. So maybe we should start with the North Shore specifically. We got all these issues going on with the Loop right now. They're losing their business license. They think it's political. I don't want to get into that part of things. But how do we just tackle like kind of neighborhood by neighborhood and address the specific needs within there? We'll start with the homelessness piece of it. How do we get people off the street and into homes where they're actually receiving wraparound services as opposed to just a place to lay their head for the night? These are really important questions and ones that we've been obviously working on for many, 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 many years, right? So um, first thing I think probably to say is that we work with other orders of government, other colleagues in the province and the federal government on this whole basket of, of, of issues and opportunities, right? The city basically works on community safety uh, issues. It works on uh, sometimes providing land or providing um, some zoning or some sort of development sort of support for housing projects. We critically engage with the public on a lot of this stuff to try and you know, sort of uh, understand where the sort of the concerns are, where the opportunities are. Um, so one example is in 2017 when the uh, the NDP government came in, in, in the province and they were really looking at uh, at, at, at uh, providing modulars for communities to actually have really quick housing solutions. Mm-hmm. We as a, as a council at the time said, yes, we want to make sure that we have the opportunity to actually get some of those in the community and work with the province to do that. So Spear House and Rosenthorn and Mission Flats Manor uh, came out of those conversations, right? So then we've obviously had really big issues around more drugs coming in the community. Mm-hmm. We have people who are potentially coming here during wildfire seasons and, and staying because they have services in town that they kind right. of are, are, are utilizing. Um, and all the while, we're trying to make sure that the, these services are well run they are having sort of a good neighbor kind of a sort of a, a, a philosophy where there's no added impact on on neighborhoods uh, and on businesses around i really think that when covid happened it caused a lot of issues in this in, in this world that made it much much worse so essentially people obviously in the community generally are just anxious but folks obviously are most, the most vulnerable become more anxious and more kind of out of control in some ways uh, the court system stopped working as, as as well for some of the things that we have to actually prosecute for and those kind of things. So, and a wide variety of people took themselves out of being on the main streets of the of the community, right? So then, folks who are home who are homeless or had mental mental health addiction problems, you know, they sort of were more visible on on our main mm-hmm. streets, right? So, given all that, there was. This council started in January, actually, or maybe December, talking about this basket of issues and really leaning into what we could kind of do. So actually, last night I was looking at uh, all the different motions we passed and the things we've tried to sort of put into place so far, trying to address some of these issues. Some of, some of them are things we can find locally, and some of them we need provincial help mm-hmm. or assistance with, right? So essentially, the local stuff revolves around more beefed up Security, more beefed up community, community, uh, community service officers, looks at operations that weren't, in our view, operating. They, were, they had bad impact on the neighborhood, so mm-hmm. the loop was a, a, an example of that, unfortunately, of a, yeah. of a, of a, uh, a service that was trying to provide a good service but was basically overwhelmed by yeah. what was happening there, essentially. And 
was causing a lot of community concern around things, and also really decreasing our ability to actually do more work because the communities around that were just not supporting it almost anything anymore. So there's a security and there's a so outreach component. Um, we've been obviously talking with the RCMP uh, all the time around things that they're trying to do. Um, and then there's a component around uh, the provincial side, I think, which is really around uh, wraparound health services. Yeah. Like you're saying, don't just, don't just warehouse people in housing, make sure they have services around. We pass motions around that for advocacy. The mayor with the Urban Smear Caucus has been really talking to um, Minister Eby, the Attorney General, about what's happening with the court system and making sure that yeah. we can get charges laid in cases, that we can get people through the court system. And then it's, you know, it's, it's important to say that, that most people don't require a, a court approach. They require an approach that's more wraparound service kind of type, right? So we're trying to figure out how to be, I would say, both empathetic and also hold people accountable for bad behavior, right? So um, these new um, day centers that are getting spun up now on West Victoria and uh, on the Tronkill Corridor are uh, really an attempt to um, have well-run, uh, robust services and places that are much better neighbors than places that, that sort of were, 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 were existing before. So all that to say, I'm hoping that as we get out of COVID-2, these issues will, will diminish because it's never been as bad as it's been last year, year and a half, in my view, in the city uh, since I've been around. But I think we have to really figure out ways of collaborating with neighborhood, collaborating with, the, with our other government partners, collaborating with our social advo advocates and working out solutions that are collaborative, that it can actually have the most productive success, right? Just the people that I have talked to who are, you know, very empathetic towards the situation that particularly, we'll say, addicts have who are on the streets, they feel like there's a lot of emphasis placed on finding a place to lay your head at night, but then you can just go out go down the street, buy some drugs, go across the street, steal some money from someone's car. I just feel like there needs to be more in-house services available at some of these establishments. Like, could council implement some kind of a policy that would say, if you're going to provide services to the vulnerable of our society, that you have to be able to provide some sort of like in-house counseling or or at least have some direct connection to another organization that's going to help address the overall mental health issues that these people are experiencing, as opposed to just saying, hey, I'm happy you made it through the night. Have a good day. We'll see you later on. I think ease of access is really important, right? Yeah. If, if, if someone says, I really need help to deal with my struggles, and you say, oh, well, here's a great place. It's all the way across town. Go check them out. Or it's in Chilliwack. How are they going to get there? Or it's in Chilliwack. Like, how are they going to get there? How are they going to actually get that help? Well, and, so, and there is, there is, with social service agencies, they do have you know, transportation available, various things. And obviously, uh, this also happens in the, in the indigenous side where, you know, there's indigenous focused, you know, treatment centers at Round Lake and places in the region. They're not in Kamloops. So those are probably, you know, good things to kind of talk about. But I think that essentially, you know, we should have as much as we possibly can here. Uh, and it's also, but, but, but also, I mean, this is where it gets kind of complicated is that somebody who's here and when they get out, get back into a bad situation, mm -hmm. maybe they should be somewhere else. Yeah. You know? So if someone from Kamloops has a lot of bad, bad, bad relationships in Kamloops and bad things going on, and they get out of the Phoenix Center, and they end up going back on a Victoria Street, how does that help anybody? Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
So, you know, you kind of need to figure out the whole continuum of care here, right? So, essentially, we have shelters, then we have services and shelter, we have transitional second stage housing, and we're trying to get people to a, a point where they can be as independent as possible, right? And some people can't be as, in, can't be as independent mm -hmm. as, as others. So, um, you know, what I learned about this work is that you need to sort of like really think about all the various services that, that, ex that, that are there that exist. You have to work with uh, the communities around to try and make sure that there's, I was, you know, the goal should be no net negative impact, right? So there's always, a, there's always unfortunately, a base level of crime that happens in the community. There's a base level of all these things. If that increases because of, you know, uh, a facility, that's not what you want at all, right? And so, again, if you have a place that's uh, unmanaged or, or managed poorly, um, where you don't take into consideration the impacts on people around, um, it can become very, very challenging. And so it became challenging at one point here, so we're trying to right that ship. Thanks, Sergeant. So yes, it, it is an incredibly complex uh, situation, if you will. Um, it's, it's not specific to COVID. Um, we, we know that these, the, these issues have been with us for a long time, um, and they've been pretty serious even prior to COVID. So um, it, it is important to have broader conversations. It is important to bring in citizens who are uh, really raising their voices and saying, you know, we, we, we need to be able to find a safe community while at the same time being empathetic with those who do suffer addictions, who do suffer mental health uh, issues and who are in the streets. Uh, but the issue really is one of the city taking... Uh, to use a sports analogy, a quarterback role. We need to, we need to coordinate. There are so many agencies out mm -hmm. there, um, and you know, having a conversation once a month um, is not necessarily enough. There needs to be coordination, I believe, between those services. I don't have the answer, but the folks who are providing the services need to speak to one another. When someone is identified as being in need let them find a pathway through all the agencies so they can get what they need. Um, and the city can play a role in coordinating that. Well, uh, that's and you remind me of one thing. I appreciate what you're saying very much. And I want, but we have a social department in the city, as you know, and we did hire a new position there, which is basically a social development and housing kind of a manager which is really playing the role, we try to play the role you're talking about for a long time, but where I agree with you is that uh, the, there's, a, there's a very complicated and complex network of how to, uh, of, of, of people involved with this, and to be a facilitator, to be kind of the sort of, so there's, there's facilitation, and then there's leadership. And as you know, those are two sometimes different things in terms of how you actually conceptualize those things, right? So. Um, I guess the question is, you know, what, what do you see us uh, being able to do better to try and uh, add as good energy as we can to this? All right. Well, we're going to wrap things up here for today. So thank you, Arjun, so much for your time My here pleasure. this morning. Really appreciate it. Leslie, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you to everyone who came down to watch and participate. I really appreciate you guys joining in. That's the intent of these is to have the community engagement, to have these conversations. So I really appreciate everyone who asked a question and, and also came down to speak. That's it. This is the July edition of Radio NL's Community Town Hall. And thanks for the Vic for hosting us here today. And hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again next month. Thanks, guys.